Girls on Film brings you more from the Lawyer, Sun, and Money Summit in Cancun, Mexico. We could stay here all winter. Not all legends in entertainment are household names. Today, Girls talks to the truly legendary Charlie Feldman. Charlie is a big proponent of being in the right place at the right time. He started his career as a songwriter in Muscle Shoals in the 70s, back when it was Muscle Shoals. Charlie's love of music triggered a move to Nashville, where he got a low-level job copying tapes at EMI, and in 16 years left as vice president to join BMI as VP of Creative in New York City. Along the way, he has stories, with just a few names you might recognize, like Robert Duvall, Waylon Jennings, and Tom Cruise. Just Charlie being in the right place at the right time. Today, Girls on Film celebrates an unknown legend in the music business, Charlie Feldman. Thank you so much, Mr. Feldman, lawyer extraordinaire. I'm not a lawyer, (gasps) but that's okay. Tell me what you are. I am a a creative executive at BMI. I'm vice president of creative and industry relations at BMI in New York. What does that mean, creative and industry relations? Well, Well, I've always been a community service-minded person. Okay. So I've always been involved in the community and the industry on charity boards and trade organization boards. I've been a trustee of the Recording Academy. I'm on the executive committee and board of the T.J. Martell Foundation. I'm on the board of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So you're nev- not very busy. No, I'm not. But, no. <laughs> but the creative part I'd love to tell you about, that really I call it repertoire at BMI BMI needs to have a very strong repertoire to license to the users of music in a public fashion oh interesting so my job over the years had been to head up the creative department in the eastern northeastern sector of the United States where we signed writers we have signed writers such as Lady Gaga Taylor Swift R. Kelly, um, some real slouches Rih- there. Rihanna, right. BB Rexa, my the team I'm on. Is and that I, e- is that easy to do? It's never easy to pick the greats because you don't know they're great for sure until they reveal it to you. But okay. but you know we have to widen our network of contacts, right. and we have to be aware of what is out there in the way of of songwriters because we represent songwriters many of whom are not artists and many are artists and we've been very fortunate to sign on writers before they proliferate as artists so nobody knows them at at the beginning and are you in charge of researching and finding these people? Do you have a team? Oh, yeah, they, we, we have a they, team. And they come to you, too, I bet. Some do, but, you know, okay. I, I've been doing this so long, and I'm in a stage in my life where today's... You know <laughs> to, there, there are a lot of young writers 
whom I communicate with and meet right. with and and try to and help and work towards helping them. That's fantastic. And and we're sounding board. I'm a sounding board, and there's a great team of young executives that have a lot more current knowledge of what's going on. I think that what you do is so interesting. And I want to go back a little bit because BMI is is a very well-known company. And you reaching out and do, working with the community, is that important to BMI? It is important to BMI because on several levels, um, when when a company is successful, yeah, it is log- It's common sense to me that you give back and you lead by being a giver, right? And it has many purposes. Uh, the most important, I think, is to really help people, right, and the community. It's also a way to command leadership in the community. Yeah. And be respected. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So it it all goes hand in hand. But, you know, when when one is fortunate and they give back, that's to me the the greatest sense of humanity. Yeah. And even if if as a you know, I'm a sole proprietor and uh, I give to I give smaller amounts of of money and I, I do a lot of volunteer work. And even if you're not working for a big company like BMI, you should still try and contribute to the community. I, I agree with that precept, and I also want to add that Please. sometimes money is harder to give than oneself. Yep. And they're both important. They're right. equally important. Right. Giving one's time. Absolutely. And I, I think it's also a bit selfish because it, to me, is very gratifying to do it it's very rewarding so it's rewarding so that's when I say it's kind of selfish you know it's sort of a backhanded way of 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 commending someone for for giving of their time so I I want to go back to to your title okay because you are a creative executive and then there was something else too industry relations industry relations could you explain to our listeners what BMI industry relations is made up of. What's the shape of it? What does it look like? What do you do? I I mentioned that earlier, but industry relations is is a proactive thing and it's also a reactive thing because everyone comes to an organization like ours and asks for help, whether it's monetary or um, creative help or input um, it's sort of to me the lifeblood of being in business in a big community right and it's it's really a mindset and and you know there was a very very wonderful person who started out in Nashville a woman named Frances Preston she rose to the level of president and CEO and moved to New York and from the I met her 50 years ago. Amazing. She left us in 2015 or 13. I okay. Don't, but she was a great woman and she was very strategic and savvy with people and with 
innovation. Yeah. But she also was a very generous of heart kind of person. Gotcha. And I really, from her lead, it indoctrinated a lot of the current employees of BMI to think about industry and community relations. And I see industry relations being community relations. Okay. And, okay. And it's it's important because you're working closely with other industry people for a cause. Yeah. Like, for instance, the T.J. Martell Foundation, which I mentioned I'm on the board of and secretary right now. And it has been led lately by an incredibly uh, wise attorney named Joel Katz. He is now the executive chairman. But he, for the last three and a half years, he's been the chairman. And I he's, think he's from Atlanta. He is from Hotlanta. Yeah. Is Hotlanta Atlanta? Yes. Oh, okay, it's one in the same. It depends on your mood. If right, you're like right, in right. this in a hot, spicy mood, you say Hotlanta. Yeah. You get a hot like yeah. that. Yeah. Or sometimes you meet someone impressive like yourself, and you say, "My name's Sarah Smith, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia." Well, thank you for the compliment. Absolutely. But, but uh, I, I want to remember my thought, but. Industry, the, the industry. industry relations. You, for instance, that board is made up of the highest level executives in all the recorded music companies, and in publishing companies, and in the agency world, and in the management world. And it's a it's a way to come together and not be competitive and work together to yeah. help. In the Martell example, it's given almost $300 million over the last 40-something years for cancer research. Amazing. To find the cure. Amazing. It's amazing. and, and That's a lot of money. That's no chunk change. I actually have chills thinking about it because the other part of that organization, the referral part of that, is that there's a, there's a cabal of hospitals that are involved in the research, and there are a lot of people in our in our industry who need help getting right. to the best doctors for the best treatment don't I, we don't I know that you know it touches everyone yes whether absolutely them him or herself or relatives right you know, everybody I think has a story of someone who's been afflicted by absolutely it. absolutely and um, and no one likes to hear they have cancer it's it's this one of the scariest things people face I think my husband is a senior research scientist at the American Cancer Society, so I'm very, very familiar and um, salute you for contributing to that, uh, to, the, to finding a cure. So, because we, we live, eat, and breathe uh, cancer research at my house. So it's very interesting to me. So you know, you know, and you could teach me a lot about it. I don't know, but I know he could. Yes. He's a he's a sharp cookie. I didn't marry a dummy. <laughs> You're no fool. I'm no. I was smart. We, I was smart. I, I saw him, and he was handsome, and from Princeton, and was a wasp, and yeah, blue blood. I grabbed him. I was very happy too. So I want to ask you. Where did you start in this business? Well, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. And, hey. and in the ninth grade, I met some great guys in school, and they had a little band, and I got in the band. 
I wiggled my way in and became a musician oh and a singer in the band, and we played cover songs. And right, right. We ended up by our junior year traveling all over the southeast, going to all the colleges, everywhere from Auburn, Alabama, Florida That's State, big time. Mississippi State, Ole That's Miss, Furman, Georgia. We were doing great, and I started realizing that music, it, it had saved my life up to that point because I did play sports, but I didn't care about sports and I wasn't very good. And it really gave me something to focus on and the camaraderie camaraderie of being in a band with other get people. Yep. And I started tinkling around on my father's piano and writing, making up songs. And then I went to college and towards the end of college, these two brothers and I decided... I decided I would stay out of college for a semester and go up to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which in the We've 60s. Heard of that. <laughs> oh, in the 60s, it was just. I mean, I'm, I met Leon Russell oh, as like, a kid. You know, tell me more. He was here. Tell, tell well, me more. These I mean, are well, these oh, are like iconic, iconic people and oh, yeah, I mean, experiences no, that that live in history that will never be, never be again. Yes. Never it, be again. A lot of the young young. The, the millennials and Gen Z people, hopefully some of them will see this great documentary, Muscle Shoals, which yeah. tells a story through the, the lens of Rick Hall. I have seen it. I admired him in high school, but I didn't know him. I did not know him. There's an, an Alabama way of saying didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know him. But anyway, I did end up We love our a, southern colloquialisms, know, actually. But I, I got to know Rick later in life, and okay. we became great friends. And and um, as a matter of fact, I went to the New York premiere of that documentary with Rick and his wife, Linda, and Jimmy Johnson and David Hood and their wives. And they are musicians right. that played on some of the greatest recordings in the world, Amazing. like Bob Seger and Paul Simon and Wilson Pickett and... Uh, Rod Stewart. I, I'm just naming a few. No, I but, love uh, the Staple singers. And great. You, you hear Mavis Staple say, "Little Davy, Little Davy," and he starts playing the bass. And I'll take you there, which is a great, uh, great, huge hit record. All right, For a semester, I was there, and, and and you went back to school. And then I went back to school and good graduated Roll Tide, Alabama. Roll Tide, very yes. good. I wish they had have done better, uh, but LSU was just too dominant. Too good. Yeah, they're too good. Joe yep. Burrow was killing, killing them. But um, and we had injuries. But anyway, I went back to school, graduated. I, I don't mean to make a long story longer. No, but, it's good to no, the history. But, the history. We've got a lot of um, independent artists that listen to Girls on Film podcast and stories about how people make it or how or what, what's their journey. Uh, those things are incredibly interesting and very valuable. 
I find, and I get a lot of comments from people about thanks for sharing the stories because people want to emulate or get inspired so they can do similar things. So thank you. No, I, I after college, so what happened? So I went, I, I, I was sort of in conflict. I was, I wanted music, but I wasn't sure that I could pursue it effectively. Okay. So I, I got a job as a sales trainee at an infant and children's manufacturing company, infant and children's clothing manufacturing company. That's that not music. Out, yeah. Out of music. And, and I ended up going to Chicago and going to What Mom company and was it? It was called Simon and McGillner. Okay. And it, it made branded clothes for other brands. Okay. And it was very successful. And for six months, I was traveling throughout the Midwest. And then I went to Atlanta and traveled part of Georgia and I'm sure my I was making good money in, in 1971 that's when that was and I called my parents and I just said after six months I, the hunger for music drove me to say I know that this is going to be upsetting to you but I think I want to quit and go to Nashville Nashville cats play clean country water guitar pickers in Nashville and they can pick more notes than the number of ants on the Tennessee Ant Hill yeah there's 1352 guitar cases in Nashville and anyone that unpacks his guitar can play twice as better than I will and I quit and I can remember on February 1st or 2nd of 1972 after working in 71 for six months I took a, a bus up to Nashville I was lucky because I had a cousin that that had a home there and they were traveling and they said you can stay in the house with the kids who were my contemporaries and they came back a month later and, and my my cousin the wife said you know Charlie you're going to have to go find a place to live I said okay and I went and I I got a room in a, in a house. It was like a boarding house. Right, and, right. And I stayed in Nashville 16 years. And, and by 1974, I had a job making tape copies and, and running tapes. Back in those days, you had reel-to-reel tapes. And, yep. and delivering them yep. for the man that headed up that office, who right. was a mentor to me. His name was Paul Tannen. And I met him by happenstance. And he liked me, and I liked him. and. Okay. You know, I heard Jim Zumwalt last night say that Willie Mitchell told him when he was starting out, make one friend. Well, Paul Tannen was my one friend. He gave me an opportunity to come work for a, a great publishing company called Screen Gems Columbia Music making tape copies. And that company had been bought by Columbia Pictures. It was Don Kirshner's company and a lot of people that are my contemporary know who Don Kirshner yeah. was because he was a, a, an impresario of music and, and film and TV. I mean, the monkeys uh-huh. and other things. 
But anyway, I stayed at that company 14 years and eventually became the general manager and vice president of the company. And alluding to what you were saying earlier about people's stories, there's there are a few elements of 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 traveling along in life that still fit today. Yeah. And one of them is work hard at whatever you do. Right. Work hard. If you slack off, somebody is going to beat you across the finish line. Yep. Work hard, as hard as you can. Hard work, the work ethic, huge. And networking. Unless you're a, a scientist that's working in a lab, looking at slides and try and doing God's work, saving lives, yeah. that's an insular job. Right. But everything else is about people and about meeting people some of the greatest things in my life happened not by my saying I want to do this but it happened it unfolded before my eyes and I think that's something you have one has to put himself or herself out there while working hard right. and somewhere something will click and happen and you don't know what the elements are that are going to come together but they will come together i think there's a real sense of bravery and and courage to uh, quit a job where you've got you know a weekly paycheck take a bus to a city where you know music is happening nashville and just go for it uh and i think you you doing that so young was was smart um it seems like a lot of people make make their best decisions because they don't know a lot <laughs> well sometimes the ignorance is bliss right thing is true but also at that age you know early 20s if one is gonna really take a risk like that when you're unencumbered with family right and a lot of responsibility it's a great time. I tell youngsters all the time, you know, people come to see me that write country songs in New York. And if they're young people, I say, look, it's easy for me to tell you this because I don't have to lay myself on the line. But if you're really serious about making a living at this, yeah. the only logical place to be is in Nashville. Right. And if you're 20 years old or 21, go, go do it yeah. because you're not ensconced in a a situation of high responsibility. Right. And yeah. you don't have the, the wife you, or the husband. You graduate. The baby on the way, the dog. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'll the always. Mo the lawn to mow. I always yeah. tell people it's really important to finish your schooling because you can always have that credit to fall back on. Yeah. When you said you took a semester off, I thought you were going to say, and I never went back. But you did. Yeah, and, and you know, there, there's, no, me. there's no logic to this because there are people that quit high school that are the most successful people in my business. Absolutely. So there's no form-fit mold that everyone has to follow to, to get to their top of the mountain, whatever their mountain is. There, there's no logic to it. Things can happen to people in an unexplained way sometimes. Right. But yeah. How did you get from Nashville to Manhattan? Um, that that leads to what we've been talking about 
I, I built whatever reputation I had in Nashville. I, I worked on that, and people knew me, and I knew people. And some things happened in my personal life that made the time right for me to move from Nashville to New York. I had a brother. I think the main reason why I made that decision, in June of 88, I had a brother four years older than I pass away. And when he passed away at 37 years old, he was 43. I was, maybe I was a little older. I I might have been 30, 39 or 38. And it impacted me so, so uh, deeply, deeply and and irrevocably. Basically what it did to me is it it told me you're not immortal and if you have a desire to do something that's important to you you better get on with it and I I had been meeting a lot of people from Los Angeles and New York and we were connecting and making things happen and I always with the screen gyms where I started was bought by EMI and it became EMI and I would go to New York for internet for year-end meetings and and meetings during the year and when I'd get to New York the energy the excitement the melting pot the diversity all of the things that really it it hit my my being and hit me right in the, the heart you know and I just loved being around that and so people knew me and and I when my brother died I actually went to New York for a memorial service and went to lunch with the woman I told you about who was the president. Oh, Francis. Francis. Okay. And I had lunch and I just said to her, you know, I want to make a move. I went through a divorce. I didn't have children. Okay. My ex-wife did not want children, which I, did, I should have known when I married her, but I didn't. And I said, if you hear of anything in L.A. or New York or any I want to make a move, you know, if it's a record company or if it's a publishing company. And the next week, I didn't know it, but timing. See, this is what I'm talking about, about putting oneself out there. And no logic. She was giving early retirement to over 40 employees at Ooh. BMI. And so the next week, one of the BMI executives, an officer of the company, reached out to me and offered me a job to come to BMI in Nashville. But I didn't it wasn't the right thing. And then the week after that, a guy who now lives in Nashville, was a vice president of creative in New York. He called, He came to Nashville and took me to lunch and, and asked me if I wanted to come on board his team in New York. And, and I just never looked back. You said yes. I said yes. Yes. And went to New York and, and uh, never really looked back. Farewell to the city and the love of my life as we left before we had to go. Love won't you if you can if you would to 
tell us one story about an artist that we know that that you found surprising that I that you found surprising interesting I mean I know you've met many 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 I artists have, I have I've met see that's the thing things have happened for me that not only in music but in film I'm waiting for you to write the book <laughs> some other people have said that but yeah. you know if I was more well known and was a brand I would write a book but nobody knows who I am so it's okay um, well, I, here's a story that involves music, but it involves recording artists and actors. In 1981, the man that was running Screen Gems, who was a legendary guy named Lester Sill, he sent me a screenplay. And it was a, although my background was R&B, I did like country, but really R&B and rock and pop were my styles of music that I grew up on southern R&B and, and rock and roll and this movie was about a character who had fallen from grace as a recording artist, a country recording artist and the movie is about his, his redemption of coming back into a world of success through redemption and there was a lot of music in the screenplay okay. and I loved it and then a week after I read it and he sent it to me t to see if I connected with some music and could you know come up with some stuff so there was an annual meeting of all the divisions of EMI the Capitol Records EMI America Screen Gems and EMI Publishing and, and then the film division of EMI called EMI Films. So I'm standing there as a 30-year-old a guy talking to a guy that's much younger than I am now, but he looked ancient but handsome. He had silver hair, dapper attire, and his name was John Cohn, K-O-H-N. And he said, well, what's going on with you, son? And I said, I just read a screenplay that I am very excited about. I've got a lot of song ideas, blah, blah, blah. He said, what was it? And I said, Tender Mercies. And it was a little film. But he said, that's my movie. I'm making that movie. He was the head oh of the God. film division. Okay. Or he was like number two in the film division or three. And there was a guy in England, I think, that was the head of it. But he said, I said, well, I got a lot of ideas. He says, I'm going to. I'm going to get you connected to this. So I went home, and the, a week later, or less than a week, the man that developed the movie, who produced the movie, yeah. his name was Philip Hobel. He was from New York. He called me. He said, Charlie, John tells me you've got ideas. I said, i got a lot of ideas. He said, send me some songs. So I, I put up a, a real... This is a long story. I like the story. So I put Take this... Take your time. I put this together. I sent it to him. That was in May or June of 81. In October of 81, he calls me. He says, Charlie, we like, they needed 15 songs. He says, we like all your songs. Please, they're going, what we're doing is the guy that's in charge of music, Tommy Oliver, we're going to go in and pre-record these songs and then film 
to playback, which means in the scene that they're shooting, they play the music back and the actors pantomime it. Oh, interesting. And it's called okay. filming to playback. So I called Lester, Lester Sill, and I said, Lester, I just got a call from the producer of this movie, and he wants me to send him lead sheets and, and more tapes of 12 songs. He said, Charlie, go get, on, go get them made up and get the lead sheets and fly down there. So I flew to Texas. I flew to Dallas. They already were shooting this movie, and they were also in the studio recording. And he said, go, go to the studio and check it out. They're doing your songs right now. They're, f- they're recording them for scenes that are going to be shot in the next week, two weeks, three weeks. I go over there, and in walks the star of the movie named Robert Duvall. And by the way, he won his own... He's been nominated by the Academy for six Best Actor movies. He only won one Best Actor Oscar, and it was that movie. Amazing. And I love this. I'm, never, I'm getting chills now. I had never been on a movie set, but but because of meeting him, and he, he did not like authoritative people, people in positions of authority, but he loved the every man. He, yeah. he liked me. So what ended up happening is... Um, I can see that. It, you, I guess, you've, but, you've got a, a very strong kind of um, aura about you of being smart and... You, you need to you need to meet this man. I'm going to stop. Keep going with your story. <laughs> I was just thinking, is your husband going to hear this? Absolutely. Is he going to know that I just thanked you? Oh. Um, anyway, so I meet Duval, and they record these songs. And Betty Buckley, who's been a big Broadway actress, she was yeah. in the movie, and I found a song written by... Bobby Hart and Austin Roberts, two wonderful guys that have written hits, and and Austin has sung hits in years past. They wrote a song called Over You for Betty Buckley. So, Who is amazing. She's amazing. And that song was a top five finalist for best song of the year at the Academy Awards. And at the Academy Awards, Mac Davis sang it, not Betty Buckley. I don't know why, but... But, you know, Mac's a great talent on his own and a great writer. I know Mac. He's a great guy. And and so I go home. I go back home after that meeting. A week later, there's a key song that Duvall has to sing in the movie. Okay. A key song. Well, I get a call at my house in Nashville, and it's a guy named Bob Mercer who was British, and we were good. We became fast friends. He said, Charlie, I have Robert Duvall who wants to talk to you. And he puts him on the phone. And he, Bob passed away, by the way. Young, young guy, not that young, but young, too young to pass away. Anyway, he um, gets on the phone and Duvall says, Charlie, can you, I need a song. I don't like that song the other guy got from me. I, I don't like it. And so I said, I'll do my best. So I... I got on the, off the phone. I called Lester in L.A. Eight eight one four nine four nine. I still remember his number. And I said, Lester, I just got a call from Robert Duvall and Bob Mercer, and they're throwing out a song that is Duvall's key song. 
and he wants me to find him a song to sing in the movie. And, you know, obviously he had recorded the other song, but he doesn't like it. So they're making concessions for the lead actor to find right. another song. He said, Charlie, can you find him a song? I said, I got some ideas. He said, well, go to the office and call and get on a plane first thing tomorrow and fly down there. Gotcha. So I go get the songs, six of them. And the next day, I book a flight, and I go to Dallas. They're shooting in Waxahachie, 35 miles south of Dallas, but the production office is in Dallas. I go to the production office, and the producer says, So? You know, that typical, so? And I said, Well, I I got six songs. He said, Well, they're having dinner over at Duval's rented house, and a bunch of the crew is there, and the cast is there. Go over there and play him the songs. So... I get in a van and Bob Mercer, who's the executive in charge of music, who at one time ran Paul McCartney's music company. And he did other things too. He worked with Jimmy Buffett running his label and he was he knew music. And he gets in the van with me and this big old Texan is driving the van out to this house on a lake and, and I walk walks a hachi, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, we stop the van and then Mercer gets out and I say, Hey, Billy Bob, whatever his name was, Billy Ted, come on in with us. And Mercer looked at me, and I said, and I knew that Duval would like having the union guy with us. So I walked in at Dissel. You know, it was Dissel. And and, um, I went over and sat down next to Duval. Now, over here is Ellen Barkin. Over here is Wilford Brimley. Then Duval's driver, who's a a Tex-Mex guy and other union people and they're having dinner and Duval says hey have you got something and I played him a song and he listened to it and then he looked at the driver and the driver went he said play me another one and I put on this song called if you'll hold the ladder I'll climb to the top and it was written by a really talented writer named Buzz Rabin who's still in Nashville and still active and thriving he stopped the tape and he looked at the guy and he said, that's great. And Duval says, Charlie, I'll do that. I'll do that. Now I'll be everything this man can be before I start. If you just hold the ladder, baby, I'll climb to the top. If you just hold the ladder, baby, I'll climb to the top. After some niceties, we got back in the van. We got back to the hotel, and Bob Mercer and I got out of the van. He says, Charlie. That was really good that you had Billy Ted come in with us. You know? Yeah. And he he complimented me. And then the next morning at 8 o'clock, they're already out on location. I go out there. I see the producer. He says, so? And I said, he picked a song he really likes. He said, okay, you're now in charge of music. We fired the other guy. Oh, my God. And that's I, the guy was older than I was, and he, he was a talented guy. Yeah. And I feel bad about that. That wasn't my intention. No. And But anyway, I stayed on location and stood with the sound mixer 
capturing the pre-recorded music played back and watch the lip syncing. Bruce Beresford was a director. The main question you said is what music, well, what happened because of that association? When Duval came to Nashville to do press on the movie, he stayed at my house and he said, he got a call. He said, Charlie, Waylon Jennings and Jesse, Jesse Coulter invited you and me to come to their house for dinner. So, bingo, you know, (laughs) Waylon Jennings, who is to me one of the greatest, greatest talents that ever. So we go to his house and we, and the reason why, this is 1983 now, the movie came out in 83. Yeah. Duval was already doing research, developing the Apostle. Oh, yeah. He even went into character in my living Great room. Great film. Him and me, and he said, "Charlie, th- let me read this to you." And he he does the preacher, and we go to and Jesse Coulter wanted to play his wife in the movie, which really became Farrah Fawcett. But it took him 13 so years to get that movie made, and we're back at at Waylon and Jesse's house, and after dinner. Waylon says, Hoss, to Duval, come on, come on out here to the garage. I want to show you something. And we walk out there, and there's an antique Norton motorcycle, 1953, which is a lot more antique now than it was in 83. Right, right. But Duval said, wow, what's the story on that? And he said, Buddy Holly gave me that motorcycle, and I think about him every day. So th- there were moments like that getting close to these artists through right. yeah, I mean I knew Johnny Cash but not that well but Duval he he and June sat with Duval when he got his Oscar June ended up playing his mother in the Apostle wow. I got close to Johnny and June because of this because I found this church in, in Nashville called the Church of God of Prophecy the Church of God of Prophecy of Shady Grove Duval and I would go there and he would take notes because it was a it was a female Pentecostal preacher named Sister Jewel. He was doing all this research for a movie that he didn't shoot till 1996. But but Jesse and June had started hearing about him going out there. So they started coming out and having supper on the grounds at this church with us. So I was hanging out with these music people. And, contri- and contributing to the projects with information. Well, it was such a... I yeah. Mean, I don't take it for granted. I love that it, it story. It changed my life. No, it changed my life. That's a great story. That's a great story. I met Tom Cruise because of Robert Duvall. He was shooting Days of Thunder. I had lunch with Duvall in New York, and he said, Charlie, it's my birthday, and I'm surprising the cast and crew. And Waylon and Johnny and Jesse and June are going to fly down to Charlotte, oh and I've got a band, and that Johnny and Waylon are going to get up and surprise everybody. So, my my colleague and boss at the time, Del Bryant, who's a great guy, and his parents were the most brilliant writers in Nashville, I think. Some of the two, my husband and wife team, they wrote "Bye Bye Love," "Wake Up Little Susie," "All I Have to Do Is Dream," "Love Hurts," just. Um, you asked me uh, not you asked me to um, I forgot the other songs but incredible songs right. but Dell and I I went to Dell and said Dell Duval's invited me to come down to Charlotte for his birthday and Johnny and Waylon are going to sing and the cast and crew doesn't know about it he says well let's go <laughs> so we went down we rode the van 
With Johnny and June, Waylon and Jesse, Duval and his wife, and Dell and I, we go up the elevator to the penthouse of the Charlotte Speedway when they were shooting Days of Thunder, and the elevator doors open up, and there's Tom Cruise, who Duval had told me had given him a, a horse, like a $20,000 horse, because Duval likes to ride. We get off the elevator, they hug, he introduces all of us to Tom Cruise. We go sit in a booth, and Tom sat right next to Johnny Cash. That's who oh. But these kinds of things, I never dreamed they'd happen, right. you know? Right, Anyway, I'm rambling, but no, it's great. I hope I'm not overdoing it. No, you aren't. Um, I think that this is uh, radio gold. Radio gold. I'm very grateful to you for the stories. Thank you very much for asking me to do this. Love it. And thank you for saying yes. You said, yeah, let's go do it right now. Sit down. So we'll end up there. And thanks, listeners. This was Charlie Feldman of BMI. Amazing. Radio Gold. We're Girls on Film, and we are out. Yeah. Mm-hmm.